According to our most recent State of Independent SaaS survey and report, nearly 30% of Bootstrap founders said they were actively considering taking some outside funding this year. So at MicroConf, we put together a guide about the top five options that bootstrappers would consider. It's called the Bootstrapper's Guide to Outside Funding, and we cover friends and family rounds, angel investors, recurring revenue financing, crowdfunding, and venture capital. If you want to check it out, the guide is completely free. Head over to microconf.com slash funding dash guide. That's microconf.com slash funding dash guide. If you have clear eyes, full hearts, and can't lose, you're in the right place. This is Startup for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. This is episode 614, where Derek Reimer joins me. He's a fan favorite here on the show. Derek was the co-host of the Art of Product podcast, and he recently stepped back from that after doing it for five or six years. And he and I kick off our conversation talking about that thought process. Then we dive into listener questions, deciding when to quit your day job, anxiety from a second-time founder, some really good questions on the show today. But before we dive into that, I wanted to ask if you have Spotify, if you could go to the search, type in Startups for the Rest of Us, and leave us a thumbs up or a five star. I don't even know what the rating system is. We've been getting traction in Spotify and more listeners and more starts and listens and engaged listeners and all the metrics. And if you've gotten some value from the show over the last months or years, it would take you 30 seconds to do that. And I would really appreciate it. And with that, Let's dive into my conversation with Derek Reimer. So you're back on the show. Derek Reimer, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me back. This has got to be your sixth, seventh appearance, and you are quite the podcasting veteran now, having, you know, yeah, you have done something that not many people do. You started a successful podcast, ran it for several years, and then made a graceful exit. Retired. <laughs> yeah, you retired from your own podcast. Yeah, you had the Art of Product with co-hosted with Ben Orenstein. And I just want to hear a little more about that before we answer these awesome listener questions we have in the queue. Was it a hard decision? I mean, you guys had several hundred episodes, five, six years, five-ish, six-ish years of doing it, mostly weekly. You know, I, don't, I know you don't ship every week. But I'm, I'm sure that was tough because you, you had a streak going. You have that, that feedback of listeners saying, this is great, and comments. You know, I know, I know the value or the, the rush or the dopamine or whatever that I get from having a podcast. And at times where I was at my lowest with it, I definitely considered shutting it down, leaving it, selling it, lighting it on fire, uh, whatever, you know, whatever I was going to do. And I never did. And, you know, at this point, I don't regret it because I still enjoy the podcast. But I'm curious what that thought process was like for you. Yeah, I guess I should say I'm technically on a podcast sabbatical, not a retirement. Because <laughs> the agreement we made at this point is that I'm I'm taking a break and we're going to kind of let this be the the time away to see if this is something I want to add back in. You know, we're going to reevaluate in the fall. It was a tough decision, I would say, but it was one that kind of it built up gradually, so it wasn't a snap decision. And you know, as I reflect on what the podcasting journey has been, we started in Gosh, it was either late 2016 or early 2017. Ben convinced me to to start doing some podcasting with him. And at the time, I was we were at 
drip post acquisition. So I had a little bit more headspace. I wasn't in the like fight or flight startup founder mode anymore. You know, we landed the plane and I had a little bit more headspace to to do some talking. And I felt like I had some things to say from an aspiring bootstrapper phase to the phase that I had gotten to that point. And so I felt like, yeah, this is this is the right, this is the right time to try this. And you know, I was I always loved podcasts like Bootstrap Web. I liked the Startups for the Rest of Us intros where you and Mike would just kind of talk about, give just a few minutes of updates about what's going on in your businesses. That was oftentimes my favorite part. If if it was like a tactical episode about something that I didn't particularly need, I would always, I would always show up for at least the, the updates to see if there was going to be anything from your journeys. So, so I was like, what if we just do a podcast of all of that and just try that and see how that, that feels? And it was it was good for for a long time, you know. I I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it was not always easy, you know, going through the level journey where it was sort of a low point in in the journey for me, but still felt like fulfilling to let that be a case study out in out in public. But at this point, you know, I find myself kind of growing savvy cow. Like we're out of the earliest stages where I feel like you have a lot of good good radio where it's like a lot of vision casting and early stage figuring stuff out. And you can pretty much talk about everything because it's so early you're not worried about competition or keeping things secret. You just want to be out there as much as possible. And now I'm in a, a little bit different stage where it's like some of the things that I would want to talk about that's the best radio, I'm kind of wanting to keep off air because there's not much value to sharing it. Like it's really mostly valuable to other people in the calendar space. And why would I want to potentially give a, you know, a shortcut, some learning for potential competitors? Like I'm not super concerned about that, but it doesn't feel like there's much to gain and there's potentially a little bit to lose from doing that. So I felt a little bit more constrained in in the things I can say on the podcast. And that has definitely made it a little bit less fulfilling for me. And I just felt like I've stagnated with it. You know, I didn't get to this the place of feeling total burnout. I I don't think, but I felt like I was heading in that direction. And so this to me felt like the healthy way to handle it of just saying, I've been doing this for a long time. And part of me, of course, wants to stay in the seat because I helped start this thing and I don't want someone else to take the seat. But at the same time, I just have to recognize that, you know, I got to look after my own, my own well-being and make sure I don't start to do something that feels like a treadmill and get burned out on it. That's good to go out while you're while you're still on top, so to speak, or still liking it and not go into that burnout phase. Because I, I definitely did. I hear you on that. You know, the transparency is cool and helpful until a point, And then pretty much without exception, it just, there's just nobody doing a lot or very, very few doing a lot of money, you know, seven, eight figures who's actually transparent with real stuff. They, some folks give the appearance of transparency, oh, here's my revenue or whatever, but really what's going on, you'll hear someone talk with an employee who left and it's like, oh no, it's so much different than they're presented, right? So they're not actually transparent, they're kind of markety transparent. Mm-hmm. And I think at a certain point that can feel disingenuous. I know I felt the same way. I, I used to talk a lot about Drip, what we were doing inside, do talks, and then some folks stole stuff that I would say from stage and kind of used it against us and competed with us. And I remember being like, that's really shit, man. And that was where I started changing and started talking, you know, less about that. So there's that danger. And also I hear you on just getting, getting tired. It is hard to have something truly interesting to say week to week, because sometimes some weeks just interesting stuff doesn't happen. And then you're constrained to be like, oh, I guess I'll talk about 
some random thing with my espresso machine, right? Or like, I got this new monitor. And it's like, okay, that's that's fine too. But it's definitely, I think, the, the truly incredible material that is really engaging, I think, is a lot at the start of a lot of these stories. And then at the pivot points of like, oh, I just sold or I we merged or like some big event happens, right? But there's just a lot. I mean, that's the thing about business. There is just a lot of kind of boring stuff in the middle and having something to talk about all the time. I think it can be a stretch. Yeah, especially being like a, a founder who's like, I'm deep in the trenches right now. So I spend so much of my time just either building product or working on businessy things. And so it's it's almost like I've I've narrowed my focus to the point where yeah, I don't have a lot of interesting like industry insights necessarily. You know, I'm not spending a lot, of, not spending a ton of time on Twitter just thinking about cryptocurrency or the latest trends where I can just opine about that stuff. So, and and it's just not in my nature to be someone who can just flap my lips and just talk about whatever for a long time. And I don't think that necessarily makes great radio, anyways. So I kind of felt like it would be a stretch for me to try to just fill in the gaps with other things and still be interesting. Like, I don't think that's me. So I had to, I had to recognize that. Yeah, well, that's cool. So it is a sabbatical. I didn't realize that, but that's a nice test. I mean, it, you know, to be honest, I remember when Ben approached you about starting Art of Product and you guys had already been co-hosting his prior podcast before then. And A, I thought it was a great idea. It was outside your comfort zone, but it was something you and I had talked about as we were talking about selling drip. You said, okay, so we work there for a year or two. And then what do I do? Like, cause I'm going to do another one. And I said, well, we need to work on making you have a more public brand. Like you need a personal brand to launch something from because you have the chops and you have the experience and blah, blah, blah. And so when that, to me, that was just right in that plan, you know, it happened to just sink right in with, oh, Derek's going to have some, some more time. So I loved the idea. And I remember that was a like a test. It was a trial period where I think he said, well, let's do it for two months, you know, or three months. And so this is the reverse of that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> let's try this for two or three months. I'm not going to replace you for now, you know, until you decide it's more permanent. So yeah, exactly. And it was, it was super worth it. It was definitely the biggest, the main launching pad for, for Savvy Cal outside of Product Hunt and Twitter, you know, was, was the podcast audience, I think. So it was definitely worth it. I, at the time, I think I was also toying around with regularly blogging and that was, that would have been just way harder to keep up than getting on the mic and talking about whatever we're doing. So I think it was, it was a great, great thing for the time. Well, great. Thanks for diving into that. And now let's dive into some listener questions. Our first question is from Vance Lucas, and it is a video question about how to know when you should go full-time on your startup. We are starting to run low on questions. So if you want to appear on the show as well, head to startupsfortherestofus.com. There's an ask a question link in the top nav, and you can ask audio or video, which go to the top of the stack, or you can just send a text question in to questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. And now... Vance. Hey Rob, this is Vance, longtime listener from Oklahoma City. My question is, how do you know when it's time to go full-time on your business or side project? I'm in the situation where I have a full-time job. I'm the sole provider for my family and my kids. And I finally managed to launch a a side project which has been pretty successful. I'm at about 1.6K MRR now. Uh, it's growing consistently. I'm still not quite at the point where I can go full time on this. And I, I think that's a little ways away given tech salaries right now that I'm depending on for my family. So I'm wondering how you would go about making the decision 
to go full time and what that would look like for you and how you guide other people to do that. Appreciate your thoughts. Thanks. It's a good question. It's a question every one of us who builds on the side has to face eventually. So Derek, what's your take on this? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming he's not asking about whether he should go full-time right now because 1, 1.6K MRR is probably not, probably not enough for sole income for a family, but I'm assuming he's kind of looking out a little ways, like say this continues to grow a bit, when's the right time to pull the trigger, right? And I think the answer to that question is really about, it's about risk tolerance and your resources, right? Like, Start up to the rest of us drinking game, in effect. <laughs> Which <laughs> risk tolerance? Is, oh, is that one of them? Nice. Awesome. Mm-hmm. It, it depends, and risk tolerance are both. Well, there's going to be a lot pitching. of drinks, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, like, assuming that assuming that he has some some amount of runway, which you know, whether it's like just money in a personal savings account or an investment account or whatever, like the main question to answer is. Can you reasonably expect to cross into default alive without depleting that resource too far? And I've been a big fan of Summit. My friend Matt Wensing, he's a tiny seed fellow batchmate as well, is building a tool that helps you do financial modeling and really any kind of modeling in a way that's like less grueling than an Excel spreadsheet. And he has some templates for this, for SaaS in particular. So you can just sort of gauge, like I have this much money in the bank, I have MRR, here's my churn, here's my growth rate. You can visualize your plateaus in there, which is pretty cool. So I would play around in Summit, honestly, and basically do do napkin math on different scenarios on you know how long do you think you can make this savings account last, and is that within your risk tolerance? Like, is it going to dip low enough where you're like, okay, if things in the worst case scenario we get below this certain threshold where I'm not comfortable, then you can wait it out a little longer. And I think putting putting modeling around it will alleviate a lot of. Concerns as opposed to saying like, well, maybe maybe you've got a hundred thousand dollars in a bank account, and that feels like a lot of money, so you're just going to take the leap. But if you do that without doing the napkin math, then you're always going to have that anxiety in the back of your mind. Like, are we going to make it? Is it going to? Is MRR going to catch up? So that's probably what I would do. I would also consider. I, I can say this because I'm not directly affiliated, but I would consider something like a tiny seed when you have a little bit more traction to also kind of help alleviate the financial concerns in the in the early stage. Yeah, no. That, you know what's funny is I should have thought of that myself, but I wasn't. I, I just hadn't. It hadn't occurred to me. But of course, yeah. If you get to even a, even a couple thousand MRR, we funded companies that small. So if if Vance, if if that's something of interest, that was an original one of the original hypotheses of Tiny Seed was we see these people in the two to five, two to ten k MRR can't quite get the job. And they can have enough money to where they, they have more runway and don't have to worry about it. What we found is that's actually a minority. I mean, it's maybe 20%, 25% of folks who come in to sign a seat aren't already working full-time on the, the company. But still, you know, that's it's not nothing, given that we've funded 80-something companies to date. So that that is one option. And I love your idea. I mean, I was going to say model it out too, just in a simple spreadsheet. But I always think of Summit as... as uh, forecasting SaaS, and in, and in this case, that's what it would be, right? It would it would be a really solid tool to be able to give you an idea of comfort level. If you don't have any money in the bank, you know, you said if you have a hundred grand in the bank, you could map that out. If you only have five grand in the bank, then you have to pretty much you know match your burn right now, right? Match your expenses. You don't have to make as much as you make from your day job. You just have to make as much as you burn in a month and feel okay about that. That it's predictable and. It gets more complicated when you have a spouse involved, a significant other, for sure. But I think that's got to be a conversation of what is what is her comfort level and what is your comfort level with looking out three months and saying, I project growth will be this, versus looking out a year, there's more uncertainty, 
right? Oh, in a year, I'll be at 15K versus in three months, I'll be at 5K. Like it's just more likely, you know, the nearer it is. So that's how I'd be thinking about it. The other thing is normally I say, well, all all the time, I still think this is good advice, but it's if you go full-time on it and it doesn't work out, what is the backup plan? Like what is the worst case? The worst case is you go back and you get a job. Under normal circumstances when the economy is booming, that's like a for for you, a developer with entrepreneurial experience, that's like a two-week process. You know, you're gonna have your pick of anybody. Now I will say there's a bit of a slowdown. There are layoffs happening. It's not terrible yet, but if it gets there, the worst case right now could be worse than it was a year ago, right? It, you you could be out of work for a bit. I still don't think worst case is that bad. So that's how I'd be thinking about it. I definitely took a huge pay cuts, so to speak, when I left my full-time consulting because I was making a ton of money, but I didn't enjoy it. And I I think I took like a 50 plus percent pay cut when I just said, oh, now I'm just going to do products. I had some cushion in the bank, 20 grand, 30 grand. It wasn't a huge amount, but I was making enough from recurring revenue that it covered all of our expenses. And it was growing each month. That's the other thing that I actually left when I was a pro, it was eight grand a month was like the number I needed to hit. And when I was at like 6,500, but I was growing at 500 a month, I was like, that's three months, I'm out of here. You know, like I, I think I can do it. And then I think we, I hit eight grand like the next month or something. Cause it, you know, there was some, some fortuitous serendipity going on. So yeah, it's a good question, Vance. It definitely risk tolerance and, and it depends, I think, are part of that. But I think as an engineer, if you can map it out somehow and feel some confidence in it, that that'll probably help with the decision. So thanks for that. I hope it's helpful. Next question is from Patrick and he says, I've spent 15 years consulting in the healthcare software space as a non-technical implementation manager. As a SaaS founder, I will be able to lead development efforts and can prioritize features if partnered with the right dev firm. My question is, before shopping for firms, should I know the best front-end and back-end architecture for my SaaS MVP? Meaning, should I be shopping for firms who specialize in X, whether that be Python, React, Java, or what have you. What do you think, Reimer? So I would probably think of it this way. When evaluating tech stacks, I would narrow the choices down a bit to like a handful of the most popular ones with the most energy behind them. And I wouldn't necessarily pick one, especially if you're not an engineer, you don't have, you're not going to be participating in the, the writing code part of things. I wouldn't necessarily be super concerned about picking the one best. I don't think there necessarily is a one best, but I would be looking for a stack that has that kind of momentum, that has a, a really thriving ecosystem, that has engineers that are working in in the stack so you can just find them and hire them and not have to train them on something bespoke or something really niche. So right now in the back end, it's, you know, it's Ruby on Rails, it's Laravel, I think there's still a lot of Python Django out there. I'll throw Elixir Phoenix out there just because, I will say, <laughs> uh, Elixir was voted the number four most loved language on last year's Stack Overflow uh, developer survey. So it's gaining some steam, especially from former Rubyists like me. But yeah, those are probably probably the big three are you know Rails, Laravel, and Django. And you know, there's a ton of ton of shops out there doing any of those. So I would I would be comparing those against each other. I think on the front end, you've got React and Vue, or I think the two dominant front end frameworks. What if I don't want a front end framework, Derek? What if, <laughs> what if I? What if so many tiny seed companies come to me and say, "Well, we have a bunch of bugs," and I'm always like, "Well, where is it?" And it's like, "Well, we, it's this untestable like single page front end app." And I'm like, "Why did you do that?" Like I. 
I'm, I, tell me to get off my lawn. Tell me to okay, boomer. But honestly, <laughs> the the big problems I see, and I know, go ahead, send the emails. Questions to start for rest of us to come. I'm not. I, you know, it's like when we built Drip, this was all a big thing. Like people were doing React and they were doing all the you know noun.js. But I specifically said, all right, do you want to use one of these front end frameworks? And you're like, nah, it's going to be Ruby to HTML. Yeah. You know, and and then we add. I mean, obviously there was um, crap. What are they even the libraries now? Well, the, there the was fr- that we used. We, I mean, we had jQuery in there for sure. JQuery, we yeah, that was like a basis. We were an app of a certain age, uh, yes. so we had jQuery. And there's other, you know, there were other like lightweight kind of front endy things that we added in that weren't fully taking over the page. And honestly, this is this is the the structure that I advocate, and this is what I use for SavvyCal. Actually, I have React in the places where I need a lot of reactivity, and then on pages where there's not a lot, it's just server rendered HTML. And I see this pattern actually emerging more and more. Just like trends are kind of swinging back towards the monolith, is what I'm seeing. So there's some new libraries and frameworks out there. Um, there's Hotwire in the Rails world. Phoenix has this thing called Live View that's basically replacing a lot of what you would use a heavy JavaScript front end for and, and moving it back to the back end. So you're just sending Java, sending HTML down over the wire to the front end, but it's still super snappy and feels like a single page app. One of my big recommendations for anyone starting something new is to stick to a monolithic architecture. Like I probably wouldn't start by architecting a fully separated front end from a back end, even though there's a lot of shiny like front end only frameworks. Next.js is is a very nice thing, but I have experience in trying to marry it up with a with a separate backend and putting everything over an API to communicate between the two. And that architecture, I think, can be good for large teams where you have a whole entire separate dedicated team working on the front end and the back end, and then you have the API layer that's the contract between the two. But when you're just starting out trying to build an MVP and iterate fast, that's kind of a lot. That's <laughs> a lot to take on, a lot of maintenance. So I don't recommend that. You can always move to that if you need to, but to start out, monoliths are really the way to go. So that like my two overarching recommendations, stick with popular frameworks on the back end and the front end if you're gonna need if you need any, and stick to the monolithic architecture. Wise advice. I was gonna say Django or Rails. Because I'm pretty simple and old school that way, and Laravel I think is a is a perfectly viable option as well. We can name ten other service side languages, but in startups we know that those are sellable assets if it's written in one of those. We know that those are maintainable. We know you can find developers that are not ridiculously expensive. We know that there are amazing ecosystems around them. There's the Ruby Gems and the what is it, the Django packages or whatever they're called. And there are things like Bullet Train, Andrew Culver's. It's like start a SaaS app infrastructure scaffolding, right? It's just like all this stuff that you get. And I think I'm assuming it's user auth and billing and login and password reset and just all that crap you don't want to write over and over. People have done that now in these these starter packages and you pay a trivial amount of money, frankly, for them based on how much it would cost you to, to, you know, to write them or have someone write them. So you start with Rails and then you buy Bullet Train and you find an agency who's willing to work with that or you start with Django and there's... So I forget what it's called, but there's something similar like that, you know, that might even be open source, and that is kind of a SaaS. You know, again, it's a foundation and it's some some scaffolding. So I mean, I think that's what both of us would do. You know, Patrick, in in your shoes, is pick one of those three, or just say, hey, I have these are the three options. So find an agency, you know, that does does one of those. So thanks for the question, Patrick. I hope that was helpful. Do you know what one of the biggest competitive advantages is for a startup? It's not being in Silicon Valley, having access to capital. One of the biggest advantages is access to great talent and the ability to hire them fast. 
This week's sponsor is Lemon.io. Lemon.io gives you access to a pool of engineers from Europe and Latin America. It's a marketplace where they check and interview every candidate and then carefully match them with hand-picked projects. And it's incredible how quickly they can do it. Lemon.io can offer you a match with a perfect developer within 48 hours. Think about it. You can have a developer working on your project within two days. And due to their extensive pool of developers, inexperienced candidates don't qualify. These are all developers with a lot of experience working on startups and projects just like yours. You can find your perfect developer or development team with Lemon.io. Claim a special discount for Startups for the Rest of Us listeners. Visit Lemon.io slash startups to receive a 15% discount for the first four weeks of working with your dev. That's Lemon.io slash startups. Our next question is actually one that came through MicroConf Connect, which is MicroConf's online community and Slack channel. And this came through probably a month or two ago. I think I was doing a live stream Q&A and I either didn't have a chance to answer this question or I remember not having having as much time as I wanted to. And so I wanted to address it here on the show. And it's from Carlos and MicroConf Connect. Oh, by the way, microconfconnect.com is free if you want to join. We have more than 3,000 bootstrap, mostly bootstrapped founders in that channel. It's a thriving community. Carlos's question is, I'm starting a new SaaS business and despite a successful previous experience, I can't stop feeling extremely anxious about it. Is this something you're familiar with? How did you deal with it? So Derek, have you you ever found yourself exactly in Carlos's shoes? Never. Never. (laughs) All right. So why don't you you enlighten us with with your experience? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think one, it just comes with the territory, I think. And there are resources out there. Dr. Sherry Walling's book, Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together, right? Has a lot of tools in there that you can that you can use to try to try to balance the mental health aspect because it is quite grueling and I can attest to the fact that even having a success under your belt doesn't make the next rounds really any easier. Things do get easier once you gain that little bit of traction and once you start to fill product market fit, then you know, the, the anxiety does ease up a bit, generally speaking. But those early days can be really, really tough. I would try to identify the primary sources of that anxiety, name them, and then work towards resolving them. So there's things like, if you're concerned, for example, will anyone buy this? You know, there's things you can do to feel less worried. You can, you can go out there and start trying to drum up conversations with people who are in the market you've identified, have conversations with them, read the mom test <laughs> so you can learn how to have conversations that are hopefully free of, of most biases and test your hypotheses. See, like, are you on the right track or not? Start to get a picture of what the ideal customer looks like and keep, keep doing that until you feel reasonably confident that okay there are some people who want this thing i'm not totally i'm not totally on an island here thinking that there's a problem when there's really not one so the question of am i building the right features like you can definitely mock things up and show early mockups to those people who have expressed interest and and get a sense like is this on the right track or not a lot of these anxieties you can combat by getting outside of the cave and interfacing with customers or potential customers and that's not often our first inclination as engineers, I know that for sure, but that stuff can go a really, really long way towards making you feel confident that you're on the right track. You know, the other piece is just kind of a mindset. I would try to look at the early phase as truly an experimental phase and try to stay as loosely committed to your existing assumptions as possible so that it becomes less less about like, oh no, am I completely off base and going to fail? And instead is more like, 
let me learn as much as possible and try to form the proper assumptions from this. Like if I'm, if I'm wrong about something, I'm going to take that as a win because I've just learned how to adjust my assumptions. And I think that can also help. If you get out, break out of the kind of rigid mindset of this is what I think I want to do, this is what I want to build, and if I'm not right out of the gate, then I've failed, then you're probably setting yourself up to be really anxious. Oh, that was great. The last point, especially I want to drive home, and I, that's what I was going to start with, is your second, your third, your fourth, they're still way harder than you remember. They're way harder than they should be. I remember coming off of Hittail, starting Drip, being like, I know this. I was not anxious at all because I'm like, I got this dialed. I have the experience. I have the knowledge. I have the money. I have the whatever else you need to make this the hard work, the luck, and the skill. You know, it's just going to work. And my reckoning was... We have built up the launch list. It's all working and we launch and then it just plateaued and people are bleeding out and we don't have product market fit. And I would tell, I should know how to do this. I know I'm pretty good at this right now. by now. Shouldn't I be? Like, why am I floundering for months and months? And so for me, it wasn't an upfront anxiety, but it was a, it was memory lapse of forgetting how hard this is every time, every time. I've talked to Heaton Shaw about this. What is he on his fourth or fifth? He's had venture. He's had not venture backed. He's had things that throw off tens of million a year in profit. Like he, he's one of the most accomplished SaaS founders I know. And with his most recent effort, we and I met at a Starbucks when I was in town and we were chatting and he's like, it's still so much work. And you forget that it, even when you know what you're doing and you have quote unquote infinity money, you know, I'm putting words in his mouth at this point, but even when you have infinity money, it's still just a grind to figure it out. David Cancel, same, I'm not trying to name drop here. These are like some, again, some of the most accomplished founders. I believe he's either on his fifth or his sixth startup and he's exited all of them and they've been real exits, not like aqua hires and stuff. I mean, these are, the dude was set for life five startups ago, you know? And he and I were speaking at an event and I was talking to him like, I was like, David, you raised, you know, 10 million out of the gate with, with no product because of your rep. And he said, yeah. And I was like, did it make it easier? And he said, nope. Not at all. You know, and he was like a year and a half, two years into Drift, and they were still just grinding, trying to figure out how to make it work. Now with David and Heaton and folks like yourself, we know you're going to make it work eventually. We just, we know that, but you tend to underestimate how long it's going to take because if it's your second or your third or your fourth, it's like, well, certainly it'll be shorter this time. Of course, you're, you have better, uh, better network, you have a better audience, you have better people giving you advice, you know, to sanity check stuff. You have a better gut, founder gut. You have more resources, you know, you have all this stuff. So I would say it's definitely not like starting over, but it's not, it doesn't put you so far ahead, as far ahead as I think one might think, given all those factors. So Carlos, you're feeling anxiety. I hope Derek made you feel better. And then I hope I didn't make you feel worse with that by basically saying it's still going to be hard. But I love what you called out, which is figure out the, truly write down the, the sentences, the reasons that you are feeling worried about this and then figure out how can I address each of them head on. So it's a great question. Thanks for that, Carlos. Next question is super tactical from Andreas and it's about TLD or top level domain name choice. He says, hello, Rob, love the podcast. So many stories, words of advice, Q&As, guests and founders with the most diverse experience. I'm currently in the pre-launch phase of a SaaS product. And one thing that's been on my mind a lot is the choice of the product name and the domain name. The latter is much more of a challenge. Since most of the best.com domains are taken, many founders go for 
io, which is perfectly fine. As the company grows and makes enough revenue, they can afford to purchase the .com, but have to pay a lot of money, sometimes even in six figures. The URL of my company is very important to me, so I would like to avoid that expense beforehand by choosing a .com domain. What would you suggest? Go with a meaningful and expressive name, but a less serious TLD, his words, not mine, a less serious TLD.io, or with a somewhat fictional name combined with the best TLD.com. Derek Reimer, what's your take? I'm so I have split opinions on this because on the one hand, I'm of the mind that the domain does not make or break the business in most cases, unless you're like truly trying to if you're being hey.com and you want those three letters, then maybe it's a big deal, you know? But in most cases it's it doesn't make or break. You know, we had getdrip.com and we were called getdrip forever and it was super annoying, but we made it, <laughs> you know. Um, that being said, I'm personally committed to .com for life. Like that's I think that's all due in the future and that's definitely what I chose for Savvy Cal. There's just a ton of evidence out there. A lot of it anecdotal, some of it some of it more scientific just to suggest that like .coms perform better in organic search and it's just simply the gold standard of TLDs. It's what people expect. People kind of expect you to be on a .com and especially if you're interfacing with with customers outside of the tech space like that's where alternative TLDs are still, you know, somewhat confusing, hard to remember. So I'm I'm a big proponent of just going .com. So Laura Roder has a really good article about this, and it's effectively how I how I chose the Savvy Cal domain name. Although I don't think I had read this article at that time, but then I came across it later, called uh, "How I Nabbed the .com for My Bootstrap Startup," talking about how she got Paperbell.com. And the gist of that article is like set your budget, you know, figure out how much you're willing to spend in the probably like hundreds to thousands of dollars, we're not talking huge amounts of money, if it's especially if it's an available domain name. It may be maybe billed as like a premium domain or something, but you shouldn't have to pay exorbitant amounts of money. And then kind of brainstorming branded words that you would want to include in the name and then kind of running it through a domain name generator. So I'm a big fan of lean domain search. That's what I used for uh, for Savvy Cal. So I I knew that adding the cal modifier on the end is something that's been done before. It's sort of like a, an established pattern for calendar-based tools. So I just put a search through there. It said, give me domains that end with cal. And then it gave me hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And I kind of poured through there. And- I remember looking at those lists. <laughs> yeah. I remember texting back and forth. Yep. I was like, there's some really bad domain names in here. Yeah, really, really bad ones. And then a couple of good ones. And uh, so you can, you can kind of weed through. And those are really... I'm a big fan of tools like that because I've done the I have the domainer app on my phone. So anytime I think of a domain while I'm like out at dinner, I can just pop that open and check to see if it's available. And I used to just try to like come up with ideas out of thin air and type them in and then I always get sad when they're taken because they probably are. So using these services that kind of surface, you know, domains. I think lean domain search is only ones that are completely unregistered, but there are other services, I think Laura lists some of them in her article, that are more like maybe they're taken but not used, so you can potentially buy it for some kind of negotiated fee from the owner. And maybe that's where the budget comes into play. A lot of times, you know, these domains that are just squatted on that are not single word, whatever, you can grab them for thousand bucks, two thousand bucks. They're usually not exorbitant. And so yeah, so I just think this is at this stage in your company, it's a great opportunity to to kind of reverse engineer a name for your brand where you can get the .com and, and go that route and just not have to not have to worry about trying to acquire it later or adding on, you know, a get or a use or whatever on the front if you don't have to. Again, that's 
not the worst case, not the worst thing in the world, and plenty of successful companies have made it with that. But if you can avoid it at all possible, I would recommend it. Yeah, I don't mind the .ios, the .cos, the .apps. Like those are, th- and it used to be .ly, although that's kind of been phased out. And I would, I do wonder if .io and .app will eventually be that way, or if they'll just stick around. But when I see a startup today with a cool domain name .io.co.app, I think, yeah, that's just. The, I just know that there aren't that many domain names. There are not that many .coms left. And is it as prestigious as a .com? No. But if I had the choice of trying to get kind of a crappier .com versus a my company name .io.co these days, I think I would do my company name. You brought up the Get Drip and how people would say, "Yeah, Get Drip is this crazy product. Get Drip, this is really good." And I was like, "This is that's not what our product is called." <laughs> and in fact, one of the big mistakes I made—I don't remember—I have probably told you this, but as we were negotiating the sale, it was after the the letter of intent, and there was a sixty-day due diligence or whatever as we were closing. Clay Collins, the CEO of the acquirer, told me, "I want to let you know that I've bought Drip.co and Drip.io, and I paid like." 2500 bucks for one of them and three grand for the other. Some, it's a very low amount. It was single digit, low single digit thousands. He says, if the sale doesn't go through, I will sell them to you for what I paid. Like, I'm not trying to squat your domains, but I want to get them now because I don't like to get drip because people are, and I smacked myself in the forehead. I was like, why the f did I not do that <laughs> a year ago, two years? Like, because it was a few grand. It wasn't a cost thing. I just, it hadn't occurred to me. And I remember seeing the drip.com was super expensive. It was six figures. And I was like, well, never going to get that. And I just didn't think creatively about just getting a, an almost domain. Now, what I would say is, with that said, I don't like seeing get your app name .io or .co because then it's too many because the .co is not quite a .com and then you have a get or a let's or a whatever other prefix suffix of that. So if you're going to go with with a slightly less prestigious TLD, then I would only do it for like the exact thing like Paperbell. Well, she got the .com, but if she was paperbell.io, that's still, a, to me, that's still a good domain name. You know, it's, it's really solid. Think about it, man. Customer.io and close.io, they now have the .com, but they didn't need it. <laughs> these are these are businesses that are doing certainly customer has been public they are doing tens of millions in ARR and close I think we they haven't been public let's just assume it's tens of millions in ARR there's no chance it's not given their team size and how long they've been around in the space they're in and I do not think the dot com would have made that much of a difference to them in their trajectory so that's where I'm now now 10 years ago it was different there were still more dot coms available but these are taken. And I, I do love your idea of, I think that's where I would start. Like if I had an idea today, well, here's what we did. The most recent domain name I purchased for a company was Tiny Seed. And so back in late, 20, I guess it was four years ago now, I guess. Yeah, 2018, we were trying to figure out names, trying to figure out names. And eventually I was like, Tiny Seed, because it's kind of like small and micro and, you know, it's seed funding, whatever. And tinyseed.com was taken. Tinyseedfund.com was nine bucks. So I registered Tiny Seed Fund and that was our original domain name for like two months while I tried to buy tinyseed.com. And that worked out. And I got it for a very small amount. It was a trivial amount of, of money. And that's something along the lines of what I would do today. First, I would try to use your, your lean domain search and try to find just a .com and, and arrange the company name around it. And then if I couldn't, I'd buy a stand-in, whether it's a .co.io until I could work on maybe getting the .com. Yeah, I definitely agree with with the kind of rules around, if you're going to have an alternative TLD, then make it exact match on the brand. 
end. If you have the .com, that's where you may need to, if you have an established brand that you're settled on, you may need to add the modifier until you, maybe you use it forever, maybe you wait until you can afford the .com or whatever. But yeah, that that seems like the right move for sure. Yeah, I remember BasecampHQ.com. That's how they started. Mm-hmm. And then Teamwork, what was Teamwork? They have Teamwork.com now, but it was something like get teamwork.com or teamworkhq.com, right? And they, they got the .com. UserList did this recently, right? Because I think they were a .io for a while. They paid a few thousand. They were public about this. Yeah, it's interesting. This is just one data point, but I think uh, Peter Levels, the, the Nomad List guy, remarked that he is switching all of his, like he's gradually buying the .coms for all of his brands, and he's probably ponying up a bunch of money for it. But he was sharing traffic charts for a lot of those properties. And like when he flipped them over to .com, like there was just a noticeable uptick across the board. And he has like 10 different sites or something. So it's like, yeah, it's just knowing that for me, like if I if I went with the .io, I would always be pining after that .com. Oh, you would? Probably. Like, because it's just, it's just the gold standard. So like, if you have that kind of affliction like I do, you might be better served by just, you know, reverse engineering the name to, to get the .com out the gate. But that's not always a luxury that that we can always afford. You know, it's not worth stalling your business out over. Totally, that's the thing is I think people get an analysis paralysis over this. You know, yeah. and uh, yeah, I'll admit I have bought five domains in the past two years aftermarket because I wanted the .com and paid in the thousands for all of them. One of them was RobWalling.com. I didn't own that before, and you know another. Uh, stylish and distinguished gentleman with an amazing name happened to own it and he was willing to sell it to me. And then I bought startsmall.com because I wanted, I changed the name of my LLC to that anyways. And so I talked to some guy who had retired and yeah, we paid a decent chunk for it. But that to me, that's like a prestige thing. And also a per, it's as you're saying, it's a gold standard. It's a personal thing. It makes me feel good every time I go to startsmall.com, you know, and I see, I see the book versus I had like startupbook.net. That was yeah. a domain for that, which is fine. <laughs> it was an SEO play, but so I get it. I see it both ways. I just think the practical, if I was super cash, I mean, I'm doing this because I'm not super cash strapped. Yeah. It's a little bit of a van, a vanity play, not in that I want to brag to people, but it actually makes me feel good. That's like having t-shirt. We have MicroConf and Tiny Seed t-shirts. Do I think those drive our bottom line and get us more companies and more conference attendees? No, but I really like having t-shirts for my companies. I don't know, man. When I see you walking down First Avenue here uh, in the North Loop, I think you're a walking, walking billboard. For billboard, tiny seats, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, sir, if folks want to follow you on Twitter, you are at Derek Reimer. We'll link that up in the show notes. And of course, SavvyCal.com if they want to see what you're working on. It's the calendaring tool that you, me, and all of our cool friends use. That's going to be your age <laughs> Exactly. H1. You could be in that group. <laughs> if you want to be as cool as us, <laughs> go to SavvyCal.com. Sign up today. Thanks again, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks for showing up for this show every week. I'm doing some traveling over the next couple months. We have microconfs and microconf locals happening. If you head to microconf.com, you can look at our in-person events. It would be amazing to meet up with you. We're heading to cities like Seattle, Atlanta, Austin, Texas, and a few other spots. And it's likely that we'll be within driving distance of, of many of you listening. So it'd be amazing to meet up in person. And with that... I'll sign off from this week's episode and look forward to being back in your ears again next Tuesday morning. 